Bienvenidos a la Chicana Mother Work Podcast. This is Cecilia, Christine, Judy, Yvette, Michelle from the Chicana Mother Work Collective. We are a collective of Chicana, PhD, mother scholars, artists, and activists. The Chicana Mother Work Podcast aims to create a communal space for dialogue that sheds light on how the labor of mothering can be a transformative act within academia and beyond. Porque sin madres no hay revolución. Chicana Mother Work is intergenerational. Chicana Mother Work means carving space. Chicana Mother Work means healing ourselves. Chicana Mother Work is an imaginary. Chicana Mother Work makes our labor visible. Our labor is our prayer. Our mothering is our offering. Bienvenida, Doctora Marta González, to the Chicana Mother Work Podcast. We are excited to have you on, and it's an honor to host you on our show. Um, so today we wanted to talk with you about your phenomenal journey uh, as an activist, artivist, musician, scholar, mother, and there's so many intersections that we have with you um, and your work. Uh, first, we also wanted to again say thank you for letting us use your music for our intros and outros. I don't know if you've heard it. Um, the two songs that we use in our podcast are Sirena Lanza, which is in our intro, and then Palomo Vagabundo for our closing. And we've received several compliments uh, about the music, so we're thankful for your generosity and how you model conviviality in this world of, of sharing and, and making sure that it's accessible to, to a larger audience. So thank you so much. Uh, we also recently created a social justice curriculum uh, for youth. And uh, in that, we included your book, Ada Activista. And yeah, so we, like I said, we have a lot of intersections with your work and we're just really excited to host you here. So um, without further ado, let us introduce Marta. Marta Gonzalez is a Chicana activista, artist, activist, musician, feminist music theorist, and associate professor in the Intercollegiate Department of Chicana O Latina O Studies at Scripps Claremont College. A Fulbright, Ford, and Woodrow Wilson Fellow, her academic interests have been fueled by her own musicianship as a singer, songwriter, and percussionist for the Grammy award-winning band Quetzal. Quetzal has made a considerable impact in the Los Angeles Chicano music scene. Um, Gonzalez, along with her partner Quetzal Flores, has been instrumental in catalyzing the transnational dialogue between the Chicanx Latinx communities in the U.S. and, and uh, Jarocho communities in Veracruz, Mexico. Gonzalez has been implementing a collective songwriting method in correctional facilities in schools, prisons, detention centers, and college classrooms throughout California, Arizona, and Seattle, Washington. She has won numerous teaching awards and is currently serving her third year as an ASU Gamage resident artist. In these ways, her performance background, music pedagogy, and transnational music movement experience has influenced her scholarship. Um, Professor Gonzalez's first book manuscript, Chicanao Activistas, Music, Community, and Transborder Tactics in East Los Angeles, will be out with UT Austin Press in the fall of 2020. Yay! <laughs> Um, and she currently lives in Los Angeles, Los Angeles, with her husband, 
partner Quetzal and their 15-year-old son, Sandino. Welcome. Thank Yay. you so much for being here. Oh, wow. <laughs> I saw pretty good on paper. <laughs> <laughs> That's legit. <laughs> That's what it's about, right? <laughs> but I have to say, I have failed just as much at things that I wanted and, you know, um, tripped over life and other things and didn't get the this and the that. And, and I think those are the things that the, you know, bios oftentimes don't show. And I always like to say that. And I, in, in spaces that I feel comfortable in, like this one. Thank you so much to all of you, Dr. Michelle Tellez and Yvette Martinez, Dr. Martinez and Dr. Caballero for, um, uh, Cecilia Caballero for having me here today. Yeah, thank you so much, um, Marta. It's, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and to talk with us. And, um, and thank you for saying that too. I think, especially for um, academics, first-gen academics, parent academics it's just we're expected to do so much so I think um just to let everyone know that you know it's okay that you're going at your own pace and that's okay and to not um compare because sometimes um what's presented you know it's not the full reality um and it doesn't represent you know the full humanity of who we are um so thank you so much for sharing that it's just such a good reminder um as amazing as you are you know it's just you know that you've had challenges and struggles too so thank you um and so we're gonna go ahead and jump in but i just did want to share i do have a copy of the activista um and you, you signed it this was like a reading you did at espacio like years ago yes are you from la originally um no from northern california but i live in boyle heights okay yeah 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 all right Oh yeah. yeah. I remember um, that. That was one of the few and only um book signings I did for that. Like it was just everything was so crazy and you know, but uh, I I was glad we got to do that. Oh nice. Oh, I feel lucky that I have it. <laughs> um so we're gonna go ahead and get started to the and the first question is so it's just very broad. So whichever way you wanna go um is fine. So we just wanna know um more about your passion for music. How did it start for you? Was it in your um, upbringing or um, how were you exposed to it and how did you get involved in it um, as an artist? Wow, okay. So, uh, yes, music was at the center of my familial life for as, uh, as early as I can remember um, for a number of reasons. Um, my dad, um, which is something I really talk about extensively in the book um, and I unpack throughout, my dad wanted to be a, uh, he's from Guadalajara, Jalisco. Uh, they migrated here to the U.S., I would say, in the, in the late 60s. My parents met in La Alejandria in downtown L.A. They used to frequent a lot of immigrant communities, used to frequent um, the, well, it's known as the Alexandria, what I realize now, but when I was growing up, it was La Alejandria. <laughs> but uh, it's a hotel that's being renovated and gentrified, obviously, but now. But at the time, it was an immigrant hub, and they met there. And my dad really had dreams coming to the U.S. here in not only, you know, escaping some of the poverty that he experienced in Guadalajara, but also to um, uh, be a famous singer. You know, he wanted to be a singer, like a ranchero singer, like, you know, Javier Solis or Jorge Negrete or something like that. He loved ranchero music, but didn't have any training at all. You know, none of his family really 
appreciated music with the exception of his grandmother who used to love to sing, pero no más por cantar, you know? And so he always wanted to be a singer, you know? And uh, he really tried to, um, unfortunately how things happened, um, you know, my mom also migrated here. She was a nanny for many years. And, uh, and at some point they met and then the rest is history as life will ha would have it. You know, they got pregnant, had to go back to Guadalajara, get married, came back, had three more kids. And, um, and uh, quickly they realized that my brother had musical abilities, like he could sing, he could hold tunes. And, and they, he started sort of vicariously living through uh, my brother's successes after that. So because he couldn't do it himself, he would enter himself into contests and things like that. But he didn't know how to read or write music. He was just sort of like oral tradition, which is not unusual. My dad was very, you know, he wanted to be a singer, but with life and more kids and having to provide, right, for your family, he kind of, his dream of, of being able, around and playing music didn't really happen for him. So I would say that my early beginning was really that, right, thinking um, how my dad instilled in us what music was. Music for us at the beginning was about being on stage, being a professional, um, having a long career in professional music, recording contracts, things like that. Um, you know, that was the value system that was attached to music. And, uh, and he really groomed my brother to go towards that. Um, and unfortunately, it wasn't always the kind of leadership and sort of upbringing that was uh, healthy, right? There was a lot of alcoholism and a lot of abuse and and so unfortunately, it's a, I learned a lot, but I also, we also, I think in the hands of my father suffered a lot by experiencing music and the music culture in this way. Um, but that's how it was. And so that was my first inkling in it. But then later on, I've had all of these other experiences um, in music that have since shown me that music could be something quite different, right? In community, music in the mountains of Chiapas, for example, I talk about this as well with Mayan Zapatista Rebels, um, what art and music can be, um, how music doesn't have to be a commodity, it can also be something that is an important self-expression because, because simply because we are human beings, you know, those kinds of things that have slowly been unpacking throughout my life and, and the ways in which um, freed me and members of some members of my family of what my father tried to instill in us, right? And, uh, and that has slowly also been a kind of healing process um, in, in the interim as well. I know you, you, you have a whole chapter dedicated to your father in the book. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about the book, but before we get to that, uh, I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit more just, cause you play so many roles aside from just being a musician, you're also an academic, your mother, you know, the list goes on. So what has it looked like for you to ex excavate your life or carve out these spaces or a space as while holding these multiple roles, multiple identities? So can you talk more about that, about the intersection yeah. of being a mom, uh, an academic, a musician, etc.? I think that life in general, and I always say this, is interdisciplinary, verdad? And I think that education is compartmentalized. And there was nothing better for me than to been ha have been able to make it to college in some way, right? College and then 
and then finally grad school, which really um, sort of, I think is a bit more open to bringing, you have to consolidate and articulate all of these different, that's what they, it's, it's really almost like really stupid the way this education system works because you compartmentalize your entire life. And then if you happen to get to grad school, suddenly you're being asked to articulate all of these roles, right? You're, you have to sort of build a narrative or, or build dialogue around what it is that you do and so on and so forth, right? So in a way, I, it was very easy for me and I, uh, not easy, but just like, uh, that was very liberating for me, right? By the time I got there, because when I went into grad school, I was already a mom. And, um, and I had already had all these other experiences that these same communities had always told me and taught me that they were valuable experiences. So I came into grad school, even though you're constantly pushing back on that Western idea that, you know, embodied knowledge isn't something that is worthwhile or important. You know, I had all of my professors and all of the leadership and the mentorship that I had was like, fuck that. You, what you know is super important. It is valuable. You need to push, you need to push, push, push. And these things, um, I, I had all of these mentors telling me these things. So in grad school, in classrooms, like I never checked any part of myself at the door. You know, I came in all, with all my, all of my cards, with all of the, everything I was, everything from, yeah, motherhood to my accent, to my way of speaking, to like, you know, not quite understanding something or asking questions like, no me, no me daba vergüenza, a veces sí me daba vergüenza, pero whatever, I would ask anyway, right? Or I would challenge anyway. And, um, and I feel like that, that had, being an adult going into grad school was very helpful because I, uh, you, as an adult, you have a leg up on these young kids that go from, you know, uh, sometimes from, you know, straight from college, straight into grad school, straight into. That was me. Si has vivido, ¿me entiendes? I was like, what, 21 when I started grad school? No, but, <laughs> but people of color have a very different experience, too, mm -hmm. right? That's not, don't forget that, right? So tú ya has vivido mucho, no, no, por, no nomás por edad, ¿me entiendes? It's not just because of age. It's also yeah. because of who you are as a brown woman in this world, in this country, in this society, in your family. You know, we have life lived, right? Mm -hmm. And so... I only say this because I, 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 re, I remember when I finally went into grad school again, I, I remember thinking like the way some of the younger people would, um, you know, sort of um, analyze things and the way we are uh, the people that had lived more or women of color, particularly the way they would challenge certain things. I was like, I, I just felt we were more, um, more versed, well-versed in, in life and had, um, it just seemed more in depth. But then getting through grad school, I think it was always different. For me, I would say that as mujeres and, and women of color, I think we can do it all. There's no, I always say, say this to my nieces, I say this to my, to my, my nieces and nephews, and my godchildren, I'm like, well, you can do it all. And sometimes, and, and, and not all at the same time, right? So when I was, I remember when I first got pregnant, there was a, a project that I really wanted to do that I wrote the music for. And I was, I was, huge I was already getting ready to give birth and and I wasn't able to finish the project I had to sort of suggest somebody else and luckily my sister was able to do it and she did it but I felt really left out and I was sad I was like oh my life is over like I can't sing anymore and like but I remember feeling really sad about that but also realizing that I was in an important moment right I was being a mom and to value that time and to 
to trust that life would at some point bring me another opportunity que yo misma iba a poder crear mis propias oportunidades en el futuro de nuevo, right? So obviously that wasn't the end of me, but it was something that I realized like, okay, I can do it all, just not all at the same time. And, and there are different moments where I can give more energy to one thing and less energy to another and like things like that, right? And so, and we're not the first people to multitask, right? Watching my mom raise four kids on welfare was a huge learning experience, watching her move money around, things like that, where I'm like, fuck, like, we're not the first ones to do this. Like she, my mom, watching my mom uh, move things around in the family and uh, was really one of the huge, most valuable um, things that I've ever witnessed in, um, you know, growing up and some of the skill sets that I bring to this very day to my life and what I do. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I just wanted to jump in with um, just a thought that I had of just how you described learning from your mom and caretaking is also like embodied knowledge, how you're speaking about music and um, seeing it modeled and then we learn it and, you know, she learned it from, you know, the lineage and then now we have those tools and skills. And it, it also reminds me of, um, um, Yesterday, I heard uh, Maya Williams, one of the co-editors of the anthology Revolutionary, Mo Revolutionary Mothering speaking, and she said something like, you know, cishet men are not the hero of the story. You know, they're just not. <laughs> so, and she said, because they're rewarded for what we do, you know, women of color or gender nonconforming, you know, they're rewarded for what we do every day. And that's part of like the caretaking and um the embodied knowledge and the music and um yeah everything that uh, you do that we do and thank you so much also for speaking to um how you challenged academic spaces and that you had the the mentoring and the nurturing for that um and i think it always makes me excited to hear that because so many people that i know don't have that experience mm -hmm. um, that's right yeah. and when we don't have those networks of support it's kind of harder a little bit harder to like uh to get there or to be authentic to yourself mm -hmm. um but you know just learning about how you did it, it it's just gives me more inspiration and hope that you know we are we can change these spaces yeah totally. i feel that my, my i have to mention her name michelle Hebel payan angela ginorio este um shirley yi uh there were so many, um, Priti Ramamurti, like all of these women, powerful women of color academics at the University of Washington in Seattle in the gender studies department were super instrumental in sort of shaping me. And, and another thing that's really important, like we can have great mentorship in the classroom, but if, they, if there's an element of your grad studies that doesn't also prepare you for the professionalization of it, because nadie te enseña eso, you know, in terms of how you write your letters, what you have to do, what you do in, in job talks, like what you like, all of these things are, it, it, the grad school doesn't necessarily teach you that. You have to learn that from people that will take an additional time with you to sit there and read your letter, send it back, bring it back to you. Let me see your talk. Like I had women of color sit there and say, let me see your talk. Do it as if like from start to finish. Like, and I, it was like, I was performing basically. It was very similar by the way. <laughs> grad school is very similar to the music world, by the way. Um, and uh, 
And it was really interesting to get that kind of feedback. And that is invaluable. So you want to mentor when you go into grad school, as you all know, you want a mentor that's going to go to bat for you in the, all those other ways as well. So that was also very helpful. That's a, it's just, that's a whole other bag. I just want to say that. Yeah, absolutely. And you reminded me too, as you're talking, um, how you theorized about mania, right, through your mother in this special issue that, that you wrote an article for, 50 Years of Chicana Feminism for the journal Aslan. So, um, so that you edited, Dr. Tellez, that you edited. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's right. <laughs> how, but what I want to say is like, for me, that's an important like how you're modeling it in this in in this conversation and it is reflected in your scholarship is so important to note right because oftentimes we become you know some we're taught that you know your scholarship is algo allá you know it's not a part of who you are but your but your scholarship your musicianship your mothering is embedded in who you are, you embody it. And, and I just wanted to make note of that, right? Because you're describing even that theory that you wrote about, but you're describing how it's lived. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And so I do, I wanna shift to your book. And again, I'll show, I know nobody can see this, but I'm really excited because I actually have a hard copy of the book and I need to, you to sign this, FYI. I don't know how we're going to make that happen, but we're going to make that happen. And again, for our listeners who uh, want to look this up, the book is called Chican Chicano Artivistas, Music, Community, and Transborder Tactics, Tactics in East Los Angeles. Uh, it's out now, as from what I understand. Well, of course, I have it. Um, and, the, and it was published by University of Texas Press. So it's available. And, you know, as I was reading through the book I, it almost was like like reading a parallel my life right and not the music part because I'm not a musician but just uh. <laughs> well I mean I'm not Martha Gonzalez <laughs> but but you know the just you know like you know Alan Gomez a historian at ASU right yeah. so he calls us the generation Zapatista right yes and, and I love that because there's, you know, there's a handful of us who were activists in, in that movimiento who then now are writers and scholars. And we're trying to bring those stories at, to the discussion, to the discourse around, you know, how do we imagine another world? And so for me, that was really exciting. And also, este, I feel like the stories that you brought in like for example you talked about the mono blanco show in 2002 at self-help almost like i was there you know and i didn't realize that that was the first time that they had come i mean obviously they're a part of the bigger engagement but i didn't go to the ford i went i went to self-help you know and so anyway so that was just really so just on a personal level it was just life-giving to sort of read you know these stories um and i really love how you know your book is also um, like a re reclamation and further unpacking of Chicanidad, mutuality, solidarity, really like an internationalist vision that I think often gets lost in, in Chicanao mm. um, discourse. Um, and then of course you like really name these two specific mom moments of translocalidad, you know, this transnationalism, right? So the, this trip to Chiapas um, and how that work shaped your political formation, which then shaped your artistry. And then this trip to Veracruz that further shaped your musical journey that then also taught you a new way of, 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 
of thinking about music and musicality and conviviality, which we'll come to in a little bit. So um, I think that this demonstrates the, the broader impact of these experiences here in the US, which I think now people will have access to. So thank you for documenting uh, these stories, Martha, they're, they're phenomenal. Um, oh, thank you, that means a lot coming from you. Thank you so much. And I just wanna recognize that, you know, and like I say in my book that this is one of many uh, stories, right? Like you have yours that, thank goodness that we, as a Z generation, you'll come through also and, 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 and give your, what your experience was in the Zapatista movement and any kind of organizing you did around the Zapatismo, right? Um, and I think there are many others out there, right? Mm -hmm. And we have a responsibility to articulate those, uh, hopefully to spend time and do this because I think it's important for us to do. Um, there are so many uh, things that, uh, that I wish I would have mentioned right, that I think uh, are, are important, um, you know, uh, to have done so. And, and uh, again, this is my story. This is how I remember it. And this is, you know, um, an offering, one of many offerings that I hope will continue to, you know, um, to be come forward. I love that. That's important to, to say, absolutely. There, we all have, and I, I, I think that it, memory serves us in different ways, you know, and so we need to all tell these stories. I, I love that. Thank you. So one of the things that stood out to me, um, and you already talked a little bit about this, about your relationship to your, oh, about the, the relationship to your dad in music. So I just want to expand a little bit about it. And, you know, also just mention that, you know, my dad was also a musician, right, from Chicago, you know, um, big band era, moves to California, is playing at the Palladium in L.A., and then is left as a single dad with two kids for, from his first marriage and ends up in San Diego and become, and meets my mom who's an immigrant from, from Mexico. And, and then his life, what I know of him was he was um, a, a wedding band, you know? Like, so he gigged every weekend, but it was like weddings and small parties, but it was every week. I mean, I grew up with not having my dad around on the weekends because he was always gigging. Mm -hmm. And so I really, you know, think about how, and for him, when I was like, I love music, I want to learn how to play music. He was like, no, go to school, go to school, get an education. I don't want you in bars. I don't want you, you know what I mean? So it was really gendered, <coughs> but I never learned anything in that regard for my dad. And then my dad died when I was really young. So, you know, that sort of genealogy was truncated there. Um, but because of, you know, the efforts of bringing, you know, um, some of the music and traditions that you are taught, I mean, really, it, because of you and the people you're in community with who brought it to, to the states in this way and to Chicano communities to access, like, I'm able to pick up a harana now and connect with my father in that way and connect with music in that way in ways that in all of my adult life have never, you know, been able to. So, so I think that's another part of this interesting and beautiful genealogy that you bring. Este, but, so in your relationship with your dad, you know, of course he plays a central role in your musical development. Um, and you also discuss in your book how his value system and his relationship to music was really influenced by capital, right? And like, you know, like, being famous. Um, and I'm interested in thinking, and then, you know, your book discusses all the ways in which you unpack it and like are really changing how we understand, you know, cultura and music and how it can be in and from and within community, right? So what I'm interested in is thinking about how has that relationship with your father, father shaped your role as, your, as a mother 
with your son, who now has also become a brilliant musician at the age of 15, right? And just thinking about that that genealogy, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, thank you. Um, we were talking about it earlier, uh, and Cecilia mentioned something about, uh, you know, how the mothering aspect, you know, it's funny because the way I, I talk about my dad, I talk so much about him and not necessarily about, I'm, I'm glad the Manya article came out because it's a lot about, it says that speaks more to the good things that my mother has taught me, right? The positive things. And, and then, but I spent so much time in my book talking about a lot of the, the sort of the traumatizing things that my father put us through, right? So unfortunately this book has, more of his contributions to my life outlook or my initial life outlook than my mother's. And I just want to acknowledge that, you know, and um, to say that part of the negative things that I learned from my dad, I promised I would undo when I became a parent, you know, and I don't think I would have really known and done that had it not been for all of these community moments I had everything from you know, the Zapatista movement and understanding the value systems in, embedded in those, everything from the dichos to the, to the actual experience at the 1997 Encuentro, to the Fandango um, movement and the relationship that we built, transnational relationship we built with those communities and how we continue to sustain those, those relationships and build um, based on these value systems that we have, right? And so, those two things, I think, really informed how I now mother, right? And how I make sure that my son understands, because even though I learned it and he has lived it, he has lived Fandango in a way that like, it's just like second nature to him. Every once in a while when we're driving, I'm like, Gordo, I call him Gordo. He's not Gordo at all anymore, but he used to be this big fat blob, drooling blob that always wanted the chichi. And so anyway, <laughs> adorable. But he is now this skinny guy um, that's a little taller than I am now, believe it or not. And um, that is, is a quite prolific. He can play requinto, he plays the flute, he plays the piano. Like he just has grown up in music since he was in my belly um, or just half of him was over ovaries and the ovaries, right? And so he, I feel like he came out sort of understanding and knowing music in a way that was very different and he also learned of course but I never really I'm kind of like I, I never tell him like oh you should do music you know I used to always say like hey you know we don't have attorneys in the family wouldn't that be kind of cool or like what like when he started showing more interest to like do more stuff that to make a living with music I'd be like oh shit but I knew that if I was completely opposed it he might want it more. So I'm kind of being really careful in how I'm talking about music. And so, but he definitely, uh, he goes to an arts high school and he's involved in music. And of course, a lot of it is based on performative, right? They train and they practice it in order to be able to perform. And I always tell him like during, when he's practicing or when, when he's doing other things, I'm like, don't you enjoy? I try to bring attention to the process. So everything from the way he practices, and then of course, fandangos, right? Like, vamos al fandango. At first, a veces no quería, you know, like there were times where he gets to this age where he'd rather rather be on his iPad or rather be on whatever, and I'd be like, no, 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 no. 
leave that thing there, vamos a ir al fandango y go, ay, why mommy dragging his feet kind of thing. And I, 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 sometimes I think like, oh, I shouldn't force him. And I'm thinking like, no, this isn't a performance. This is like, he has to come, he has to come and see it. And then nine times out of 10, he would enjoy himself. He had a great time. He would be the only one still up there. I'd be like tired sitting off to the side and he'd still be there. I think he saw also as a little person, the appreciation that adults, most of the time it's mostly adults, right? Except for the kids that are running around, which he would also take a break and run around also, you know, and uh, he appreciate, I think he appreciated that as well. I would tell him that, you know, I just try to bring um, his focus because in our societies, capitalism continues to be that thing that everybody, oh, you could sell this. Oh, you can, you can be big time. Oh, you could, one day you should do an album or, you know, it's always there. It's always, it's prevalent. It's around us. It's part of how we grow up. And so I'm always trying to, I'm trying to do the opposite always at home. Like, gordo, que bonito que lo que pasamos, verdad? Que bonito este fandango. ¿Cuál te gustó más? Este fandango, el de San Francisco. O que te pare? Son diferentes los fandangos en México que los fandangos en like, you know, just kind of getting him to get, get que notaste, you know, que, like trying to get him to notice and value the process more, right? And get him, him to understand that. Who's your favorite teacher? Who's your favorite, you know, those kinds of things. And um, I, I see his value system sort of like, um, I feel like he knows the difference um, and I want him to, to know the difference and know that there are two value systems to it as well. Because sometimes, because he gets so, many, so much attention and accolades sometimes for the way he plays in Fandango, which can, you can mess up or you could do the things like, it's okay, right? It's part of the process. And then when we come to rehearsing and if he wants to play with us, I said, okay, tienes que ensayar. And if he doesn't want to, because he'd rather be doing, okay, si no ensayas, no vas a subir al escenario con nosotros. Do you understand that? And he's like, well, what do you mean? I was like, even if you feel like doing it in that last minute, if you don't practice with us, your ass is not going up on that stage. Do you understand that? And he's like, okay, okay. And then like, aunque no quiera, tiene que ensayar. So I feel like I'm my dad sometimes, and other times I'm like, you know, because I don't want him getting up there just because he's cute and little and thinking he could just do whatever thing. And I'm like, no, 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 tampoco. Like you gotta, I know what he can do. So he's gotta come with it, you know? Does that sound mean? I'm just saying like, you know, there are two, <laughs> two different, I'm seeing all your faces like, you know. No, no, no. <laughs> it's hard. I think there's like that hard balance between, you know, um, teaching our children those boundaries, you know, and also recognize and giving them access to these traditions but yet, yet also teaching them, you know, that este, hay que trabajar también, hay que trabajar por algo, you know, and, and... Y, y eso es algo que, in, in the book too, I, I was talking to somebody else about the book recently, and I was like, I'm not saying we need to replace, like, I, there's no way that this whole movement could ever replace how we understand music that we buy and we sell it, right? That there are exceptional musicians that dedicate their entire lives tirelessly, and they're, like the kinds of musicians, like you listen to a recording and you can cry or I have been moved by performances to the point of tears, right? Where I'm just so inspired and I leave, like there is a value system there. I'm not denying that at all. What I'm saying is that we also have to develop this other world that we know we have that 
capitalism has really, and the way it has arranged so many aspects of our lives has really robbed us of thinking of ourselves, human beings as fundamentally creative, that we need these things, that we need to express ourselves poetically, artistically, painting, whatever it is, and that we need to um, create these circles that welcome the community aspect of it, that we do it, no porque quiera, queremos vender, not because we want to sell it or uh, these things or we want to professionalize, but solely because it's a human right. It is a human right. And capitalism in its most like, in its most uh, um, like uh, oppressive form has taken that, val that human value and, and really separated us from it. It's okay to do it as a kid. Everybody appreciates, oh, que bonito tu drawing, like, you know, and for kids it's okay, but the older we get, the more we're discouraged to do that unless you're getting money for it, right? So to me, that's, that's, that is a crime. That in a lot of ways, it's a crime because I think there would be less mental health issues I think there would be less people suffering from depression and things of that sort if we did more things that were creative more often, if we allowed ourselves as adults to try new things, to be creative, that just because it's part of who we are as human beings. Yeah, I really, um, yeah, I love what you're saying, um, Martha, about, um, about music specifically, but really any kind of uh, creativity. Um, because to be human is to be creative because we create all the time, even if we don't call ourselves an artist. So I really resonate with what you say because I'm a creative writer and I think about, um, you know, because it's, it's also in publishing or, or, or anything creative where it's just like, oh, you know, we should strive for the, uh, the accolade or the achievement. Um, or it doesn't mean anything until you get that. And that's BS. Yeah. That and it also makes me think of um, what you were saying earlier about education and academia, where it's also that value system of capitalism, where it's also about, oh, it's just, especially for first gen people of color like us, like, oh, it's about achievement. It's about learning this skill, that skill, you know, performance. And that is also determining our worth. Like, oh, you know, let's go, you know, the goal should be, let's get you know, more people of color to the Ivy League or on the tenure track or whatever. And, um, but that's what I really like what's coming out of um, educators who are abolitionist educators, where they challenge, you know, oh, it shouldn't be about just achievement or even about, you know, mastering skills. It should be about, um, you know, what does the, what does the community consider? Um, can the community set the educational uh, curriculum you know, and can parents be involved in that? Can kids be involved in that? And really, um, and that's also another way of challenging, um, you know, individualist capitalism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah, oh, were you gonna? Yeah, I was gonna say that was gonna bring me um, to the next question because you, you were, yeah, talking about like how we're trying to get away from this individualistic neoliberal notion of like capitalism and instead focus on community building. And in your book, you mentioned the, the term convivencia. And so I wanted, I wanted to hear you maybe speak more about that, about, um, about this mindfulness of being in, in, in presence of others, being present, and that being a, a code of ethics in and of itself within activismo. So um, I'm just wondering if you could talk more a little bit about that and maybe possibly even like, what does convivencia look like in 2020? Because we were seeing so many shifts this year. So you could say a little bit more, we'd love to hear that. Man, it's so funny when we went into the pandemic, I was like, 
it's funny how sometimes you are tied to product, right? Like where I was like, fuck, everything I wrote about is gone for shit now. <laughs> like nobody's going to get it. And then I realized like the more we went in through this whole thing, I realized that this is when we might understand it even more in the sense that even if it wasn't a deliberate convivencia, we still, I don't know about you, but I'm dying for interaction now. Like I'm anything, like a little party sitting around talking. The other day I had, I went to my friend's house and we had a mask on and she had the windows open and everything, but we sat there and we were very careful. But I remember thinking, to, I, I felt like, oh my God, I'm, I'm in somebody's house. Like I'm, estamos conviviendo, ¿verdad? And y, y se me hizo bien, bien bonito and something I realized that I need, you know? And one of the things that, that I realized is that this moment really makes us realize how much we need each other. Even the people that don't really know each other, like going to the store, for example, is sometimes a treat for me. Of course, I'm armed to the T, right? I have my mask on and I have everything and I'm going through it. And, and at least I'm making eye contact with people and I'm nodding and I'm like, but I'm a very social person like that where I'm like, hi, you know, like, like oh, hey, oh, please, after you. And like, you know, and some people are kind of crazy, right? They're more rude and stuff like that. It also brings out that in people too, but for the most part, we need each other, right? And convivencia is, is a deliberate word that really, um, that fandangueros used a lot. That's the first time I ever heard it. Si, no, el fandango es como la convivencia con la música y la poesía. And I was like, convivencia, everybody would say, la aquí, vamos aquí a juntarnos, la convivencia. And I'd be like, damn. Like, era una palabra, a, a word that kept coming up, that kept coming up. And claro que I knew it. And it was like con, it's a, a term that comes from con, which means with, and vivir, which means to live, right? And, but it means much more than that, right? It's to live with. But it, what it really means is to be completely present and mindful in mind, body, spirit, right? To somebody else's presence, right? And in this case, we're doing it via music, poetry, dance, rhythm, improvisation, right? You're, you can't be on your phone and in a fandango, put it that way. And it's, unless you're taking pictures of it. But it's, uh, in terms of participating, is, is a whole other thing. And as you're in it, you actually, you can actually get high. Like I, sometimes when I'm in it and I'm sweating like a dog, and like dancing or I'm in it. I've been in fandangos where I lose track of time. I experience what Thomas Torino, the ethnomusicologist might call flow, where it's like you lose track of time and you're, you're in another almost dimension with people around you and it's cathartic. At the end of the day, it's cathartic. And experience convivencia cannot be done by just one, one individual. It has to be done in community. So convivencia in and of itself as a, as a, as a value system decenters the commoditization of music, number one, the, in, the hyper-individualization of, of what this society gives us consistently and is constantly pushing on us as the only way to succeed and disrupts that completely. Mm -hmm. It reminds us that we need each other to be happy, to live, to be at, to to feel whole, right? And once you experience it or experience something like it, fandango is not the only way to do it, and that's something I mentioned as well. Like fuck, fandango may not be your thing, but there are other things. Y, y que muchas cosas that capitalism has taken from us. They're different 
um, traditional systems in the Mexican nation state alone, but in other ways, right? Hip hop have the cipher. Nobody talks about the cipher in hip hop. They just talk about the latest kick-ass rapper that we need to buy their album for. Like, very few people know that there was an entire culture and process involved in an MC doing what he does, right? Or and that there are four different elements to hip hop: turntablism, graffiti, este, you know, right? Uh, um, um, MC, este, and and b-boying, right? Like. There's all these categories to hip hop, right? And so anyway, I, I just, Convivencia really helped me understand and look at other aspects of my life as something that maybe have been altered by capitalism or this constant feeding that they give us in society, in our schooling, in our families even, right? These things that we need to undo or be very mindful of and try to push back on and perhaps reintroduce or invent even something that will give us those moments with our families, with our communities, mm -hmm. with the world. And how does that then tie in with Artivismo? Because you've got, you know, Convivienza, Convivir, and Artivismo, Arte, Activismo. I, I, I feel like there's well, a lot. Me, of... I, I love that you're asked that because for me, Artivismo is really, so to say artist activist is nothing new, right? We know that music and, and these, vessels, right, musicians, songs, artwork, right, can be political, right? But at the end of the day, they are also commodities, right? Like, I bought these things, or I, we buy songs, right? Uh, John Lennon made his life out of being a, an artist activist, right? Eso no, that's no, not so far-fetched. My generation of Chicano artivistas, self-proclaimed artivistas, is, are really precisely that, signaling to process, right? We have, are just, it's not that we don't make money or try to build, try to build careers here and there on our uh, music as activism, right? Like my, my band Quetzal, we have uh, more than 13 music projects, recordings that are based, that are political, could be considered political, right? That part of it is not necessarily artivismo. What is artivismo is the work we do um, teaching, you know, fandango, trying to get more people connected, collective songwriting workshops that we've developed, the process that that takes, right? So I believe that Artists now, it's not enough to do political work that mm -hmm. you urge people to buy, buy my album, and you'll be enlightened or whatever the hell, right? It's not enough anymore because capitalism can, once it's out and sold, like you don't even have control over that anymore. And we've seen this, right? Yeah. The Beatles have these amazing songs that Nike used to sell their tennis shoes. Nike's tied to child labor, so on mm -hmm. and so forth, right? Entonces, what did they challenge? Nothing, right? when you sell something at the end of the day, realistically, right? But what we can think about as artists is like, okay, along with those things that you do for yourself and your own career, I think it's also really important that you hold yourself accountable and develop processes. What are the processes that you're developing that are really going into communities and, and, and dialoguing with them and really getting in there and doing process? Like, and, and that is the part that, that is really about being an artivista. Artivismo is different than artist activists. Artivismo, again, signals to process-based work. You know, people that are involved in creating those spaces for community, being involved, um, sharing things like that of that sort, right? being in the trenches in those ways. 
You know, and you have had this commitment, you know, I'm, right now I forgot about this song, but ahorita en esta conversación, I'm remembering um, El Canto Alegua, right? Is that what it was called? Yeah, yeah. And, it, uh -huh. and it was, and it was, um, and it was like this crossroads, if I'm remembering correctly, about choosing, you know, what kind of path to follow. And you've always been committed to this path of artivismo and not commodifying este the artistry, right? And so what year was that, that that song came out? Man, that was, when was, that was 2003? Yeah, wow, yeah. So this yeah. commitment you've had, Marta, is amazing, you know? And I mean, we're all uh, learning from it as well. Oh, yes, I wanted to read something from your book. I know we're, we're getting close on ending, but I, in your introduction, um, you write this, and I just wanted you to maybe respond to it um, in just in the last few minutes that we have. So you say, my labor as a musician over the years enables what I know, and thus what I recount and theorize in this book. It is an autoethnographic account of varied music moments experienced on a professional stage, panhandling on street corners and in the throes of community organizing amid the many struggles and deep trenches of social movement. Importantly, the varied experiences I recount and theorize in this book altered how I conceive and practice the craft at present. Most of all, it demonstrates how over time a music practitioner like me experienced a fundamental change in philosophy. And do you want to talk about that change? for you? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody really knows when they're experiencing something, they don't really know how it's going to be life altering. You know, there have been a couple of moments that I the, the Zapatista Encuentro was the first time that I was like, wow, well, that's not true. Involving being involved at the PRC with the Big Frente Zapatista, which is um, a group of artist activists that were getting together that were just wanting to have dialogues around their work. Uh, we were creating shows to raise money, to support each other's work, but also to raise money for this encuentro. You know, and, and um, in doing this, you know, we're young, we have all this energy, we're partying, <laughs> right, also. <laughs> But we're also sort of studying this philosophy and being and not content with the world and the way it is. And we feel like invincible, you know? I think that age puts a lot in perspective after a while. And I would say that even though I have less energy, I still feel that way, you know? Mm. Mm -hmm. And there have been times where I definitely, and I mentioned this in the book, that I was definitely urging my partner and the band to like, what some may consider selling out, right? And everybody had a different, you know, sort of perception of things and, you know, sort of, but it was more not because of, it was more like not understanding how the world could really be the reality. Like, it's just, you can't fight against it. This is what it is. This is what we're handed. How else are we going to do it, right? And keep playing. And it was like, and it oftentimes take, uh, takes other people and community members. In this case, it was my partner 
that was like, oh, Marta, think about it. Like, we're going to, you know, and it was always a dialogue. And if we do this, we're never going to be, it's just the beginning. We're never going to see our way out of it. And so I really appreciate that from the different people that have been around. And, and I would say that I think that the unpacking and the change of philosophy has made me understand the world in a way that I don't feel betrayed by it anymore. Mm. Mm. I understand systems. If you understand capitalism, really, you'll understand the educational system, right? Mm -hmm. And you'll understand academia, mm -hmm. what it is, how it functions, maybe how you have to, there are times where I have to say, you know, I talk about myself in, in these bios and this way because I know how the system works and I know what it wants for me, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not the time to be humble, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I fucking pack that shit. Mm -hmm. I write my bio like I'm the fucking superwoman, right? When because really you are. No, pero yo sé cómo me creó mi mamá, right? I'm fundamentally, I think that deep down inside, I feel like I am like anybody else, insecure, want to be accepted, want to be liked, um, humble, want to be humble because that's a value system I was raised with, you know, and things like that. But when it comes to academia, I'm like, fuck that. Like, you got to come with everything you have. You got to, one of the first things I do for my students, I know they're undergrads, but I'm like, let me see your resume. And I'm like, what did you do here in this? And I make them reword things. That's what my mentor did. I was like, no, 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 no. You have to remember that white people barely sneeze and they, you know, they in a, in a boardroom where they're talking about something and they take credit for some of that work that was done in that boardroom. You know what I'm saying? It's like, we don't, but because of the way we're raised, sometimes we take that into our, the way we represent ourselves. And I understand the world in a way that I, I see the matrix now and I'm not, there are times where I put it on and there are times where I, I know when and where to do it. I know what it wants from me and there are times and I know when to resist and I know when to feed into it. And then those times I take full responsibility for, but then there are other times where I'm like, you know, I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to feed into that part of it. I'm going to give my energy more over here. Right. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways I have that, that right now I have that um, being a tenured professor, I have that now I can sort of take my foot off the accelerator and say to myself, voy a pasar más tiempo con mi hijo, ahorita que me necesita más, voy a estar más tiempo con mi mamá, yo le puedo dar algo a mi mamá now, you know, I can, so those, remind myself of those things, Marta, it's not so important to do this other stuff anymore, like focus, there's always, now it's just like the slow, sort of just moving along, and, and then, y mira, when I think about the institutions now, like some of them I fold and like all this was for shit. And then I think like, no, well, luckily I never quit my night job. <laughs> <laughs> in time, it's like, okay, if you really believe in Marta, you do want to tear all this down and like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, damn, like it's always challenging me, right? Mm -hmm. Always challenging me. So now, anyway, it's important conversations to have, but I think that it, it makes you a more honest person in life. Um, in understanding the matrix and it also makes you less scared of it and more um, when you understand it you can develop your own narrative of who you are what you bring to the table um, with confidence because you understand how it works right and what it's trying to do to you 
and what you refuse to do, what you refuse to bow down to, right? right. Really right. understand it. Then it's like, fuck you guys. I am not going to give into that. This thing that you're trying to keep me from or something you're not trying to give me or something you're not, you know, you understand it. And so after that, it's like, it's kind of like the way the world is waking up right now, right? Everybody's looking at boardrooms and how many white people are on boardroom tables and advisories and like, we're all the brown people. We're all the black people. We're all, I mean, you know, all of that. It's unpacking all of this for me. It, that's, and that's what it did. Yeah, no, that's amazing. To be able to have that reflection is, is powerful. And you share that with us. There's so much more in your book. Like the fact that you use Emma Perez's Chicana Decolonial Theory for an album that won the Grammy. I mean, <laughs> that, not, that's amazing. You know what I mean? So I want to encourage our listeners to, to find this book and to read it. Um, and before I have a final thought, I wanted to see if Yvette and Sissy had anything else to add before we close off. Um, yeah, I just want to jump in to just circle back to what you were saying about um, how um, kind of like you're saying in this moment, it, the veil is kind of being lifted um, for a lot of people. Um, maybe who hadn't even seen it to this extent before. And it just made me think about how earlier you were discussing um, um, fandango uh, and music uh, just as this liberatory space. And I think sometimes when, um, you know, people who push for social change, you know, we kind of think of it in the future tense, like, oh, you know, maybe after capitalism or, you know, after, you know, when, everyone's going, you know, at some point in the future, um, maybe not even in our lifetime, but I think for the way that you describe the um, Fandango space and the work that you do, it's just like, well, that world exists right there. It's there. And every time you do one or participate in one, it's there already. So it's like practice. So another thing is, you know, we already have that in these spaces, maybe even though that they're maybe momentary in that, in that space, that particular space and time, but it's that how you're speaking to that value system that then you can take elsewhere. And that's how we can keep building the skills. And I think that's also challenging, you know, this capitalist idea that, um, that, that, that that's not possible, but it is. And people do it all the time <laughs> in so many ways, right? So, um, and I think that's just even um, more of a reason why the work that you do is um, so important and why this book is so important. So just thank you for for everything and all your medicine, all your words, I feel like all of your words are medicine. And I'm, I'm so happy that we could share this with. Um, Thank you so much. Absolutely. You know, I have folks that have been involved in Fandango for some time now that some learned in Seattle, Washington through the Seattle Fandango project. And some of them took the value system of the Fandango and put it into an archive building project. It's called Women Who Rock. And if you look at that project, we st helped start it as grad students, but most of those people involved were involved in the Fandango uh, community there. And they were like, it should be collective. To build an archive should be a collective process. It, should be a, it, should it shouldn't just be one person deciding. We need to make it public. We need to let him. And so they instilled this idea of the convivencia and like building uh, archives um, to document women in music and women in community spaces in this in this um, website. And so you're right, it leads to other things, you know, it leads the philosophy or the value systems. Once you understand it and you see the matrix, you be, when you look around in your life, you begin to sort of be able to sort of like, wait a minute, 
not take for granted the social relations of certain things, right? That they are social constructions and that we can undo these ways or we can reinvent them or we can recreate, uh, we can restructure the value system. And that's what these women did for the uh, archive uh, building project. So, which I encourage everybody to go to as well. You're also reminding us of just like the, the importance of art, creativity, performance, you know, just that, that those are different forms of emancipatory labor. And, and I think that brings us to our closing, which I think, Michelle, if you wanted to. Start. Yeah, right. So you offer this in your book and I wanted, we wanted to end the podcast with this reflection because I think you offer um, um, like a model, if, if for lack of a better word, pero este, but it's a continuous question too. Mm -hmm. You say, how are we to uphold the emancipatory labor for the next generation, right? And, and, that's, and that's a powerful reflection, you know? And so, you know, we offer this, you've made your offering in this, in this beautiful book, but not only in the written wor word, in, in all of the facets of the work that you offer to us. And so we wanna thank you. And, and we hope that that question, you know, will reside in the spirits of our listeners to think about how they can uphold this labor as well. And Martha, did you have any final thoughts that you wanted to add? Thank you so much, all three of you for, uh, for having me today. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's beautiful. I think it's revolutionary. And you all are doing um, very similar work, like nos entendemos because, and, and I'm so grateful mm -hmm. that you see the value in it, especially Mujeres like yourself, mothers that, that you know, recognize um, this kind of labor as valuable. And I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Please don't forget to follow us on social media at Chicana Motherwork on Instagram and Facebook and at Chicana Mothers on Twitter. And please rate our podcast so people like you can find us. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. We want to thank Dr. Marta Gonzalez for giving us permission to use the music of Entre Mujeres y Dena for our intro, and Vagabundo for Quetzal for our outro. To purchase our book, you can order it through the University of Arizona Press, and you can find the link on our website at chicanamotherwork.com. If you want to book this